This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the official voice of Ratio Christi. This is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Jennifer Quinn. And we're going to be talking today, we're back on the topic of original sin, the doctrine of original sin, but this time we're going to be talking about how it applies to our lives. So stay tuned for that. We want to remind everyone that our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can also check out our Facebook page. And if you're interested in podcasts, you can find us both on iTunes for Apple and Mac users, but also Double Twist for Android users. Also do check out ratiochristi.org. And remember, our email is at email at evidenceforfaith.com. All right, Kirk, we have Jen here on the other side of the microphone in the remote studio. And uh, I've got a quote for today. This kind of applies to what we're talking about, about original sin. This is from Thomas Merton, and he says, We stumble and fall constantly, even when we are most enlightened. But when we are in true spiritual darkness, we do not even know that we have fallen. So that is from Thomas Merton. Kirk, now, you remember last week we had archaeologist Ted Wright on? Yep. And we brought up the issue about the darkness that happened during the crucifixion of Christ. Yes. And both you and I thought that we had heard about some... I guess, observations or documentation about people from, I think there was one from North Africa and one from Italy that commented on a darkness at this time. So, he actually sent something to us. He says, in answer to Kirk's question, the Gospels do recount that the sun was darkened on the day of the crucifixion from noon until three in the afternoon. Ancient non-biblical sources confirm this. Plagon Trallianus records in his history, Olympiads, quote, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, so that's time reckoning by the Romans, which would be equivalent to AD 32 to 33, uh, he says, a failure of the sun took place greater than any previously known. And night came on at the sixth hour of the day, so which that is noon. Wow. Uh, so that stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew the greater part of Nicaea. So that is a quote from Trallianus in his history book, Olympiads. 
That's so cool because so many times when I read it in the gospel, I just think of it being dark and an earthquake right there where he was crucified in the surrounding area, but not all over the earth. And to hear like these other non-biblical accounts, that's just amazing. That's right. Now, this is, uh, to be fully clear, this is from Italy, so it's not necessarily all over the earth. Uh, Besides, half the earth would have been dark anyway because it would have been nighttime. Right. (laughs) But um, the other account we have is from North Africa. So both of those places are fairly close to the Middle East, but still very interesting that we have. So in other words, what I'm saying is it could – because, you know, when you have an eclipse – Sometimes it doesn't cover the whole earth. It just covers part of the earth and only some people can see it. Depends on how the shadow falls. But this sounds, at least this is a really big area because North Africa, Israel, and Italy, that's a huge area. I think I'm pretty sure that that is much bigger than what would normally be uh, an eclipse. So there you go, Kirk. There's your answer from Ted Wright. Fascinating. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Yeah, appreciate him sending that in. Now, we've got a couple of news items, and these are both from a guest that we had recently on the show, Dr. Fuzz Rana. So he has he publishes at the website Reasons to Believe, and that website sends out an email every day called Today's New Reason to Believe. So I recommend people sign up for that email. And two interesting ones came through. One called Non-Random Mutations Scramble the Case for Common Descent, and the second one was a brief update on the long-term evolution experiment, which we have talked about in past shows. But let me just go through some of this stuff. He says that uh, mutation rates in the genome of E. coli are non-random and optimized to minimize their impact on survival. So this is really a startling finding. Let me just read this whole paragraph. He says, although evolutionary biologists regard mutations as the engine that drives the evolutionary process, more often than not, mutations are deleterious to the organism. These scientists have long thought that mutations occur in genomes randomly. Natural selection fixes into the population the few mutations that increase the organism's fitness, but a recent study indicates that organisms can manage mutations much in the same way that an accountant structures finances to reduce the, the amount of taxes a client owes. <laughs> so basically the genome and the machinery that controls the DNA actually knows about mutations and takes that into consideration in how it behaves. So he says... By analyzing and comparing the genomes of 30 E. coli strains, researchers from Great Britain discovered that the mutation frequency varies across the bacterium's genome. Some regions, hot spots, have a relatively high mutation rate. Others, cold spots, display a relatively low rate of genetic change. The researchers learned that hot spot and cold spot locations are not random. Hotspots occur in regions where mutations would not would do the least amount of damage. Meanwhile, cold spots show up in areas that harbor genes critical for E. coli's survival. So the genome actually manages and allows mutations and controls areas to prevent mutations where it's important that mutations not occur. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 
The other thing that uh, is interesting in here is he says that one might say, okay, well, maybe it's just the activity of the gene level, right? Like areas of the DNA where there's a lot of activity, maybe those are the hot spots. And areas of the DNA where there's not a lot of activity, those might be the cold spots, right? Somebody could argue. But he says, uh, additionally, the researchers determined that the cold spots tend to occur in highly expressed genes. So, again, it's the important genes that the DNA is constantly using to manufacture proteins and for other regulatory functions, those uh, much-used areas, those are actually the cold areas where there are not a lot of mutations. So, very, very interesting. Hmm. So, he says further on, he says, optimization of mutation rates can be seen as further evidence for intelligent design in nature. And I have to say also that it also invalidates one of the things that evolutionists love to say, and you see this in Dawkins' book, that evolution is completely random, right? It can't be guided. So this right. actually would be also helpful to the theistic evolutionist, right? The person that believes that, yes, evolution did occur, but it was guided. Well, here's evidence that, indeed, evolution is not, ran not random, that these mutations are being controlled in some way. Hmm. So again, that belies the evolutionary paradigm, which says that these mutations are random, uh, and apparently they're not. Wow. Then in the second article, this is dated 1216, he talks about the long-term evolution experiment. Kirk, I don't know if you remember when we've talked about that in the past. It basically was an attempt to demonstrate evolution by growing the same strain of E. coli for more than 20 years. So this experiment started in 1988, and it's been going on ever since. And it's been performed or led by Dr. Richard Lenski. And I think you might remember in the past we talked about how one of the things it showed is that there was essentially no changes. There were a few changes, and they had to do with the E. coli adapting itself to its environment. So when you put the E. coli in a certain environment, it adapts itself to that environment. So the vast majority of changes occurred rapidly, and then it trailed off so that as the experiment went on and on and on, fewer and fewer mutations took place. So, and of course, by mutations, they mean any changes. And, but you know, the latest research shows that these changes are not random. So they are changes that are being deliberately made. The bacteria, the DNA is actually redesigning itself to try to adapt to its new environment. Huh. So let's see what he says here. The long-term evolution experiment inaugurated in 1988 and led by Richard Lenski. This study was designed to monitor evolutionary changes in E. coli. The LTEE began with a single cell of E. coli that was used to generate 12 genetically identical lines of cells. Then he says, the forces of natural selection have been controlled carefully in this experiment. Temperature, pH, nutrients, and oxygen exposure have remained constant for the last 20 years. Starvation is the primary challenge facing these cells. And I think you probably remember that we've talked about how the cells adapt themselves to stresses like starvation. So the, the genome, the, the organism will actually 
reshuffle its genome in order to try to come up with some new combination to turn on dormant genes and turn off genes that it's using in order to change things so that it can survive better. So these organisms were put under a lot of stress. And he says here that around 32,000 generations into the LTEE, E. coli started utilizing citrate as a a carbon source. The team reasoned that this newly acquired ability resulted from a series of mutations to the E. coli genome. So it started using a new source of material partway into the experiment. When they looked to see what was going on, though, was this an example of an upward evolutionary change, right? New information that the organism gained through adaptation and uh, mutation and natural selection. Well, he says it turns out that this new capability did not involve the evolution of a new gene, but the altered expression of an existing gene. The gene is expressed when the cells are grown in the absence of oxygen. So, of course, since these cells were not grown in the absence of oxygen, that gene was turned off. But because the organism was beginning to starve, it rearranged its genome. And as it continued to multiply each time, trying to try new configurations to look for some way to become more effective in this particular environment, it eventually stumbled across turning on this gene, which is normally off. Right. The information that was already there. Exactly. Just adapting to its environment. That's right. So the, uh, this involved a genomic rearrangement in which regions of the genome were swapped. I got into a brief conversation debate on YouTube on evolution. This goes a while back, but that was something he said. We observe evolution in bacteria. And it it was just like I had already explained the difference between micro and macro, and yet he still didn't see how that's a perfect example of microevolution. Absolutely. It doesn't give any evidence for a macro. That's right. So we do believe in evolution. We believe in microevolution, or another name for that is adaptation. So in fact, more and more evidence seems to indicate that the DNA is actually designed to adapt, that it will actually intentionally adapt to its environment when it's under stress. It tries new arrangements of things in order to turn off old genes, used genes, and turn on unused genes. So, well, Kirk, uh, I guess it's time for our MythBuster segment. Yes, it is. So jump in. We actually started this last September. Do you believe it's been that long? And we've had so much interesting stuff since then, we haven't been able to do another one. But today... Time to do another one, then. Today, we're going to do another one. We have the second myth that we're going to bust here. And today's myth is, most wars are caused by religion. I'm sure you've heard that many times. Many atheists like to claim that most wars throughout history were caused by religion. But this is deliberate misinformation, and I have some statistics here to back that up. For instance, in a book called The Encyclopedia of Wars, out of 1,763 wars during the 20th century mentioned in this book, only 123 were motivated by religion. Now that comes out to 7%. And another interesting statistic is that 4% of that 7% were motivated by Islam. 
So if you're going to say that Christianity causes most wars, uh, these statistics show that you're way off on that belief. Yeah, we actually covered this about two years ago in an episode. Uh, we talked about that, and I, I just double-check, I think the Encyclopedia of Wars, that covered not just the 20th century, that thousand wars covered all of history. I think you're right. Um, yes, I think you're right about that. Um, well, I'm getting it mixed up with my next point here, which says during the 20th century, more than 110 million people were killed by just 52 prominent atheist leaders, uh, leaders along the lines of Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, uh, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, etc. And these statistics include 60 million people killed in the Soviet Union, 40 million in, um, I think I misspelled that, China, in China, 15 million in Germany, 2 million in Cambodia, and 5 million elsewhere, which adds up to 110 million. Now, this is more people than all the combined religious regimes of the world killed during the previous 19 centuries. Wow. And which I think you said that the of the religious wars, most of those were Muslims, right? Yes. Uh, the the 7% of the wars that were religiously motivated, 4% of those were, is, were, were you know, uh, can be uh, traced back to uh, Islam or uh, Muslims. Now— 3% um, were other religions. Yes, including Christianity. So the data seems to indicate that atheistic leftism or secular leftism is far more deadly a philosophy or worldview than even radical Islam. That is exactly right. And, of course, that's the direct opposite of what most, most atheists say. They say that, oh, atheism isn't responsible for, you know, wars, but Christianity has caused all kinds of wars throughout history. <laughs> and as I said in the beginning, that is deliberate misinformation. It's not correct. Here's an example. Uh, it says here that anti-theist repression was so successful in the Soviet Union that under the Penal Code of 1927, you could get 10 years hard labor in a concentration camp for teaching your child the Lord's Prayer. Wow. Now, is that tough or what? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so crazy. And the sad thing is that this is the prevalent teaching in secular universities. Is that that's what creates such the animosity towards Christians and people of religions because they have this myth in their head as fact. Yes. It just causes all these wars. And I wish that the statistics you're talking about now was talked about in university history classes and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, atheists like to say, oh, you know, atheism doesn't cause wars. But the Soviet Union was officially an atheist nation. And when you take into consideration, you know, the, the statistics I just gave you, uh, 60 million people during the 20th century were killed in the Soviet Union. Um, that's a lot of people. And 10 years hard labor just for teaching your child the Lord's Prayer, that's, that's pretty uh, radical. Uh, but even in religiously based wars, this is really interesting, religion has usually been nothing more than a cover for someone either trying to gain secular power or for ethnic and tribal hatreds. Now, I have a couple examples here of that to illustrate that. For instance, the long civil war in Sri Lanka that went on for quite a while looked like a clash between Hindus and Buddhists. 
but it was actually an ethnic war between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. In other words, it was a clash between ethnic groups. All right? Wow. Now, you probably remember the religious wars in Ireland. Right. Well, those were much less about the authority of the Pope or the Queen than about generational hostilities between families. It was more like the... uh, you know, the hillbilly wars or whatever. It was one family group against another. And, of course, one family group was Protestant and one was Catholic. But that really wasn't the reason they were fighting. It was because they were just different family groups that decided, for whatever reason, they hated each other. And that was the real motivation for the war. So even though on the surface it might have looked like, oh, it's the Protestants against the Catholics, it really wasn't. Right, and they weren't acting very Protestant or Catholic when they were bombing each other, right? No, no. You know, that's the that's another point you can make. Uh, how how can you have a, a a religious war motivated by Christianity when Jesus taught people to love one another? How do, how does that fit together? <laughs> to love enemies and to turn the other cheek. So any war that is under the guise, if they say, oh. My Bible teaches me to do this. It's the total opposite. Jesus said to love your enemies and do good to those that hate you. Right. I often think of uh, when I was a kid growing up, and this was long before I was a Christian, one of my favorite movies was Barabbas with Anthony Quinn. You remember that one? I do. And uh, there's one uh, line in that that's always stuck with me over the years. It was right after... Jesus rose from the dead and Barabbas goes out to the gravesite and he's talking to the woman, uh, to Mary, I believe, who, who saw the stone rolled away. And he's, he's saying, uh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about here. And he says, well, you know, what did they tr- crucify this guy for? And the guy and the woman s- responds to him and says, well, he taught them to love one another. And Barabbas looked at her and he was like, they crucified him for that? <laughs> right. So it's like, how can that teaching create wars? You know, it's it's just kind of crazy. But anyway, to give you a couple more quick examples, uh, the civil war in uh, Rwanda uh, between the Hutus and the Tutsis, which was in the news a lot within the past few years, that was an entirely tribal war. It was a war between tribes. It wasn't a religious war. It was ethnic. Yes, another ethnic clash. The Thirty Years' War in Europe that went on between 1618 and 1648, which is often said to be a religious war, was actually less about religion than it was about the power of rulers protecting their turf, which that reason is probably responsible for like 99% of wars, somebody protecting their turf. Right, and they can find any excuse. They're just going to look for why the other side is different. Uh, Let's fight them. Right. So, and that's not to say that there have not been Christian hypocrites in the past. No, no, it isn't. But to say that people like that are responsible for most wars simply is a totally inaccurate statement. Correct. So we are here today to bust that myth. There you go. So the saying that science flies you to the moon and religion flies you into, the, into buildings <laughs> or that atheism flies you into genocide. Correct. That's a good one. That's a good comeback next time someone says that. All right. Thank you, Kurt, for that. All right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about or going to be talking about the doctrine of original sin. 
Now, we left off actually last month on that topic where we talked about what the doctrine was, and then we talked about what the evidence is that supports it. And so today what we want to do is talk about we know that how does it apply to our lives, right? How can we apply that truth to a Christian worldview? So let's back up a little bit and then proceed. So we have to remember that one of the big things that happened, well, the big thing about the fall and the doctrine of original sin is the effects that it had on people and on the creation, right? It had this uh, basically catastrophic effect on everything, not just Adam and Eve, you know, who then had to uh, suffer the effects of declining health and would eventually die, but also everything around them changed, right? Thorns and thistles became possible. Uh, Animals started killing and eating each other. The universe was exposed to a phenomena of decay where it began to fall apart. Yeah, and, the uh, the explanation that I've heard for that that I like is that once um, mankind fell from their perfect position and became morally corrupt, that God realized, being a just God, he realized that it wasn't fair for corrupt human beings to live in a perfect universe anymore. So he cursed the creation also right. as a response. Right, yeah. They Their decision resulted in damage to the entire universe. Right. So now everything is declining, getting worse, and we know this from just our everyday experiences. Things fall apart, things decay. Suffering, pain. Right. So everything is uh, going downhill, including the fact that the universe will eventually die out. It'll just, all the suns will stop giving light. There won't be any stars. Uh, Everything just decays away. All the planets crash into each other, fall into their suns, get pulverized into dust. And eventually, the entire universe will be nothing but discrete atoms floating around in a sea of nothing. Yeah, I think uh, another uh, explanation of this that local people will be able to relate to, too, is... uh you know, Hurricane Sandy is is long over, and even the damage that it caused is kind of in the process of being repaired. But a problem now that a lot of people are still dealing with as a result of that storm is the mold being caused by all the water coming into their houses and stuff. Right. There's mold everywhere, and that's another example of uh, how the, you know, things are count- kind of go downward. We have mold and rust and rot and all that kind of stuff to deal with. Yeah, and that's a good example of a natural type of evil that happens. But then also just the situation that happened in Connecticut with the shooting of all those children, how man man is fallen, man is evil, and there's suffering and pain that we have to deal with now because of our choice to rebel against God. Yeah, and I find it really interesting, too, that all the news media are all talking about this, about, oh, we don't understand this, we don't understand this, why did this kid do this, why does this happen? And every time I hear this, I I think, well, because of corrupt human nature. That's why human sin is why this stuff happens. Absolutely. So if we're going to then apply this to our lives, one of the things that we have to recognize is that we've been affected by original sin. So we have problems choosing right from wrong. So even our ability to choose 
between right and wrong, that also has been affected by the fall, by original sin. That's been corrupted too. That's right. So you can do things that you think are right when they're actually not, (laughs) or do things that you think are wrong that actually aren't so bad. So every part of it, now, now this is related to a doctrine in Christianity called total depravity, And I often hear people get this wrong. I was just listening to an atheist podcast a couple of days ago, and they talked about the doctrine of total depravity. It's not the idea that we are as bad as we can possibly be. That is not what total depravity is. It's that all parts of us have been affected by sin. And everybody is. There's no person exempt from this. There's no person, but even that there's no part of you Right, Kirk, you can't reach into some inner part of you where there's purity and then cling to that. Like we hear in movies and and books and, you know, even get well cards, right? There (laughs) isn't that ability. There's no place in you which is pure that you could reach into and say, you know, this is my inner self. I trust that. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not that your inner self is an awful thing. You might be a really good person, you know, and you might even be a better person than anybody else I've ever known before. But the fact remains that that good part of you is still tainted. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, uh, you have a big container of water and you drop a single drop of, say, bacteria into it, contaminant. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so it still looks like it's clean water, but that drop gets dispersed to every part of the container. Mm-hmm. So there's no place. You can't, oh, you know what, if I only scoop, I, I need a drink from this container. If I only scoop a tablespoon from this particular part of the water, then that will clean there. No, yeah. it's not. Once it's contaminated, it's contaminated. Right. I've also heard the example of a window if you have a crack in a window, you know, 95% of the window could still be okay, but you have that big crack there that ruins the window. That's right. Right. I heard people over talking at work um, just a few days ago, and she was saying, I believe that people are basically good, and it's just society that corrupts them. But <laughs> what is society made up of? Society is made up of people. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of a circular argument, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the doctrine of original sin and how it applies to our lives. So simply what you're really saying is nobody's perfect. Yes, that's right. Nobody's perfect, but not just that. No part of you is perfect either. There isn't any inner you that you can reach out to, gain strength from. Right. Parts of you. Now... We know Christianity teaches that there are spiritual disciplines and that if you apply those spiritual disciplines, you can become a better person. So there are things like prayer and Bible study and fasting and church attendance. And scientific studies have confirmed this, that if you attend church, if you read the Bible more, they actually the most effective one of those different disciplines, the most effective one. Do you know which one it is? Reading the Bible every day? Yeah, it's, it's reading your Bible, right? Reading your Bible is the most effective. It makes you a better person. So you can adjust. You know, you can evolve, if I want to use that word. You can become a better person. Shh. <laughs> 
is that's not enough. Because of original sin, you still are tainted. You will never be perfect. And, you know, actually, there are some Christian cults that believe that you can become perfect. I don't know. I guess their membership must be constantly changing because they bring <laughs> people in. And, and once the somebody figures out they can never be perfect, they don't they leave the cult? Yeah, and which boggles my mind because if you would think of any of the uh, Christians being perfect, wouldn't you think of the Apostle Paul? And yet he said, sinners of whom I am chief. He con- he considered himself just as like a sinner who needed saving. Excellent. That's yep, really true. Yeah, so did all the apostles feel that way. So what is the missing thing? Well, the, the missing piece is something about the way we were created. We have been created as relational beings, okay? We were created, and this is obvious to us. I mean, you know, people want to get married. They want to have families. Uh, We form groups and organizations. We get together all the time. We create societies. We are relational beings, and we look at people who want to be by themselves, right, and don't want to have anything to do with other people. Those people are, there's something wrong with them. Right. And so this is very obvious to us that we are relational beings and we're that way because God designed us that way. Why did God design us that way? Well, I have one idea. What is Because it? he himself is that way. Exactly. The Trinity is a relationship in itself. In his image. Right. So we are relational beings. He is a Trinity, three persons in one being. So he has already from eternity, experienced love, relationship in the Trinity itself and has chosen to create beings with whom he can share that relationship. Mm-hmm. Missing thing with choosing right and wrong and living a righteous life is we need to do it by being related to God. In relationship with God, then we can begin to be truly righteous. So what we need is the Holy Spirit. Right. As he says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, because without him, we can do nothing. We're weak. We need his strength, his Holy Spirit to fill us, to allow us to live a godly life. That's right. Oh, gee, you're you're just saying that Christianity is a crutch then. Actually, it's more like a stretcher. We need God for everything. (laughs) Yeah. I I heard somebody say once in response to that, no, it's not a crutch. It's an iron lung. There you go. Well, try this. I, I, don't, I forget who said it, but uh, Christianity is not a crutch. It's an entire hospital. <laughs> yeah, that too. So, and something that I like to say is without the Holy Spirit, there is no holiness. So if you want mm. holiness in your life, if you want to be a good person, you need the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's something wrong with you. Mm. You have original sin. You are fallen. You're a fallen creature. And you need a source of power. You need a source of holiness, and that is the Holy Spirit. So, so then in our application, then, how do we make right choices, right? How, how can we choose right from wrong? So we need to realize that central to all of sin is self-sovereignty, right? Self-ishness. Like yeah, pride. Exactly. Wanting to be in control. Mm -hmm. And this is a big reason, you know, uh, we have a lot of atheist friends who listen to this podcast, and uh, they know that a lot of the reasons that they are atheists is because they want to be autonomous. They don't want to be 
a slave to some master, right? But they they're have a slave pr- to themselves. They're a slave to sin, according to Scripture. <laughs> That's right. That's they right. all have a problem with any kind of authority outside themselves. They'll be a slave to something. It's just a matter of who you're going to be a slave to. Right. Right? The one who created you and loves you, right? Or the one who wants to destroy you mm-hmm. because of his own pride. Mm-hmm. And so, we, from the story of the fall, we know that sin is central, or actually selfishness is central to all sin, and no mere human can determine right and wrong, right? You can't just decide on your own what right and wrong is. Now, why is that? Why is it that, Kirk, why is it that you can't just make a decision and you can know absolutely that the choice you're going to make right now is the right thing to do? Well, the obvious answer that comes to me is, wouldn't you pretty much have to know everything about the universe in order to know that you're making a right decision? Of course, you'd have to be omniscient. Right. Because the that action that you're taking can have ripple effects down through time, like a pebble dropping into a calm water. It just those ripple effects just go on and on and on and on. Right. So unless you know all those ripple effects and how it interacts with other people and how it causes those other people to interact with other people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you can't possibly know whether that action you're taking is truly the right thing to do. Right. How many times have we heard people say, oh, I thought I was doing the right thing, but then something happened that went wrong afterwards that you didn't foresee? Right. And so many times you hear people say, oh, follow your heart, whatever your heart says to do. And we actually know from the Bible, actually, the heart is deceitful above all things. Scripture says who can know it is wicked. Oh, I've been seeing that a lot lately on all these um, Christmas movies and stuff on TV where they're almost every one of them says somewhere during the movie. Oh, you know, listen to your heart, follow your heart, do what your heart says. And every time it that comes on, I keep saying, no, no, don't do that. Right. Yeah, the, um, we just watched a video in Sunday school from Dr. Peter Kraft, who is a professor of philosophy from Boston College, and he talked about how Himmler, in the Nazi uh, SS officer, used people's consciences to get them to do evil things, right? He appealed to their conscience. He said, you know, do the right thing. We have to kill these Jews, so it just shows how your heart can be uh, misled and totally wrong. Mm. So we need to rely on an omniscience, a source for good and evil that does know everything. And then we come to this issue, though, of, okay, so we're looking to God for a source of right and wrong, but it can just be arbitrary, right? Then God says lying is wrong or God says murder is wrong, but he could have just said that murder was right, right? I mean, that's actually a uh, view that some religions have, like Islam believes that God, that things are right and wrong simply because God chose them. And like he, he just have, tossed a coin and decided, okay, this is right and that's wrong. <laughs> for whatever reason, he chose them and he could have chosen otherwise. And mm-hmm. then murder would be right if he chose it. So you can see where they sometimes they get some of their ideas from. So, but the Christian says no, it's not that way. And the other extreme would be that okay, well then, right and wrong are a part of the universe, and even God has to follow those rules, like never to tell a lie. 
So God has to do that. And then in that sense, then God would be somehow less than the moral law. And The universe but, itself would be greater than God is. That's right. But in Christianity, we see that right and wrong come from the very nature of God himself. Lying is wrong because God never lies. And that's what makes it wrong is to behave not like God. Mm-hmm. To be God is to do things that are right. So, you see this emphasis in the New Testament, not about following rules, but to advance in Christ-likeness. That's the the best explanation I've ever heard for what good is, is that anything that's compatible with God's nature is good, and anything that's incompatible with his nature is bad. That's right. Yep. And that's because of where, in Christianity, where the source of goodness is, it comes from God. Go back again to that there is no holiness outside of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So, basically, we need to ask ourselves, if we're going to make right choices, we need to recognize that every single choice is a chance to advance towards godliness, towards Christ-likeness, or to regress from Christ-likeness. So, we have to constantly, in every situation, be asking, what would Jesus do? Right? And there was a big movement. What would Jesus do? People used to wear those bracelets, WWJD. And that's really true. That really is a great guide because Jesus taught us that no matter what the situation is, it's not a matter of following the rules. There isn't enough rules to go around to explain to you every possible situation because there are a quadrillion possible situations that you can think of. There isn't enough rules. You couldn't memorize enough rules. What you have to get to is the principle behind the rules. So, what did Jesus say was the main principle behind the law? It was love. Mm -hmm. To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you're loving, there's no room to sin if you're truly loving like Christ would. That's right. So, we have to follow the principle behind the rules, just as Jesus did, the golden rule, uh, you know, loving others. And the interesting thing about this is, as we attempt to become more Christ-like, we attempt to look for the real moral principles behind the rules that we can truly obey and truly be loving, we find that we're comparing ourselves to Him and trying to move towards Him What this does is it acknowledges him as our sovereign, right, as our master, as our king. Because he is our king, because he is our master, our leader, our Lord, when we try to imitate him, we are doing service to him. Right, and we're allowing him to direct our lives. I like the example you used the other day at the Ratio Christie breakfast when um, you said, if I were to lend you my car and then I continued to drive it, would I have really lent you my car? And it's the same thing with our lives. Like we say we give our life to Christ, but then if we continue to live for ourselves and then did we really give our life to Christ? Are we allowing him to drive us in his Holy Spirit, create holiness through our lives and actions? So, yeah, Absolutely. So we have to stop thinking what's right for me, right? Because, you know, this is the way the world thinks, right? It's Mm -hmm. right for me may not be what's right for you. So we don't look into ourselves and think, huh, well, you know, I like vanilla, right? Uh, That's just the way I am. Well, I like uh, or cheating on tests, that's okay for me, right? (laughs) 
no, it's not okay. We have to stop thinking about our self and we have to die to self, right? That's what Christianity teaches, that we die to ourselves and we live to Christ, right, for others. So this is even brought out in the sacrament of baptism, right? When you get baptized, you are saying publicly, I die to myself. And so when you go down in the water, that's like going into the grave. So your old life is dead and buried. And when you rise out of the water, you are rising to a new life, a new life that's in Christ and the Holy Spirit in you. That's a a symbol, too, of Jesus dying and then coming out of the grave. That's right. That's right. So we imitate our master in that way, and he exchanges lives with us. So in a sense, it's like saying we're, you know, we're essentially committing suicide. We are killing the old life. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm now going to live for Christ. As Paul says in that verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not I that live, but he lives through me. Right. That's right. Uh, so, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's the Christian method of righteousness, of living a moral life, of determining right and wrong. It's not about looking inside yourself. It's not about following a set of laws or rules. It's about living in relationship with the God who created you and created you to be like he is. So that's, uh, okay, so then uh, where does faith come in, right? Where does faith come into all this? Well, that depends on what you mean by the word faith. In Christianity, faith is not believing something you, can't, you don't true or not. Faith is trust. So we trust God that this method of living, this way of life, this being transformed into Christ-likeness, is the best way to live, right? Even though it might be hard. You know what? Let me tell you, it's really hard to pay the amount of taxes that I pay. (laughs) You know what? It's so easy to make some adjustments that nobody would know about, (laughs) and it would save me a bundle of money, right? But that isn't the right thing to do. Are you sure nobody would know? (laughs) uh, uh, Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) The IRS has ears everywhere, you know. <laughs> and he has that doing things his way. You know he's never going to leave you or forsake you, and he promises to provide for all that you need. So being truthful in your taxes, he's still going to supply everything you need. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we can trust God. We can trust mm-hmm. him. So there, there's a couple of things. It's, it's practical issues, yes, but it's also uh, spiritual blessings, right, internal, personal Uh, blessings that you receive, you get freedom from guilt, right? You live with a clear conscience. You have joy in your life. Being a Christian is really a wonderful experience. And so all this angst about, oh, wow, I wish I could get away with doing such and such that I, even though I know it's wrong and I'll just suppress the guilt. Actually, you know what? It's really good not to have the guilt in the first place. (laughs) But also the Bible's very clear that there are physical social, psychological, emotional benefits that come. And science has repeatedly shown this to be true. When you live a Christian life, you are happier, you're more psychologically healthy, uh, emotionally healthy. Uh, You have a lot fewer problems like depression, uh, things like that. 
So to finish up then, we just to apply the doctrine of original sin, we want to obey because we love him and we want to be like him and we trust him, right? We have faith in him. We trust him that this is the best way to live. Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!